Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Positive Enterprise Value can be found on Bigelow LLC's website, which is BigelowLLC.com, where we freely share immediately useful information to entrepreneur owner managers who want to build their enterprise value for a capital gain someday. How is it that some private enterprises successfully transition through evolutions and revolutions in leadership, management, even ownership? Some end up with terrific new majority owners, the EOMs moving gracefully into the next interesting and rewarding chapter of their lives, surrounded by friends, their positive legacy assured, their independence powered by the fortune just realized, while others' outcomes look more like a train wreck. Is it simply luck, or is it more than that? We think it's more than luck. Successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves clues. Deconstructing the behavior of high-performing EOMs lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. So in this Positive Enterprise Value series of podcasts, I interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur-owner managers from both the for-profit and the not-for-profit domain who are high performers, maybe even peak performers in their niche. Today, I'm tickled to interview my close friend and guest, Howard Brodsky, in an interview in, taking place at his headquarters. Howard is the co-founder and co-CEO of CCA Global, a $12 billion private business. It's a co-op, a cooperative, one of the most successful cooperatives in the world. A pioneer of the cooperative business model, Howard Brodsky has dedicated his career to helping entrepreneurs build successful businesses by providing the scale, resources, and innovation that they needed to compete in an evolving marketplace. Howard had the vision to apply his successful business model to other industries. Carpet One, Flooring America, Flooring Canada, The Floor Trader, FEI Group, International Design Guild, Lighting One, ProSource, and the Bike Cooperative total over 3,000 locations. CCA's newest divisions are CCA for Social Good, which services over 2,000 childcare centers and 1,000 nonprofits. Biz Unite, which provides backroom business services for over 1 million independent businesses. Innovia Community Management Cooperative, which enables companies to seize opportunities and improve profitability. And CCA Sports Retail Services, which helps independent fitness and ski stores thrive. Howard has many significant accomplishments, but one that really stands out to me is his induction into the Cooperative Hall of Fame established by the National Cooperative Business Association to recognize individuals who make unparalleled contributions in advancement of the principles of cooperation in the United States. And here's the part I love the best. The first person to win that award was Benjamin Franklin. I had the fun of digging into some of Howard's early inspirations, motivations, successes, disappointments, and wisdom in this hour-long podcast. He candidly talks with me about his journey from the son of a Russian immigrant with one retail carpet store in Manchester, New Hampshire, to the world-changing organization CCA has become under Howard's caring leadership. This podcast was recorded live on November 28, 2018 at a CCA Global Recording Studio from its headquarters located in the historic Amiskeg Millyard in Manchester, New Hampshire. As always, these podcasts are unscripted and unedited. Are you ready? Here we go. It's great yeah. to be with you. Pete, it's my pleasure, really it is. I'm looking forward to this. And um, I just uh, thought I'd ask you to start out, if it's okay. You have a pretty public persona. Yeah. A lot of people know you. Uh, let me give you a chance. If you were yeah. going to use a couple of nouns mm. to describe what you do, what would you say? What would be a couple of nouns you would use to describe what you do professionally day to day? I guess in some ways I think I'm a builder. Yeah, a builder of entities that empower people, um, an innovator with the heart. Love it. Yeah, a builder and an mm -hmm. innovator with heart. And uh, when you think back to when you were growing up or if you think back to mm -hmm. your times of your education, right. have you ended up in a place that you thought you would? Absolutely not. Tell me about that. Um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, my father was from Russia, Russian immigrant. 
came over and opened a small floor covering store and uh, died when I was quite young, oh. when I was 13. And where was that? In Manchester. Oh, okay. So right locally. Oh, I guess I thought it might have been your grandfather who came from Russia. No, with my father. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, and I saw the great <clears throat> pride he had in the business. And I had an older brother and sister who were, loved education. And uh, I looked at my mother after my father passed away and I said, that's what I want to do. Wow. Now, How old were I you? Know, I was 13, just turned 13. So you felt, even <laughs> when your father passed away, uh, that you felt like you wanted to be a business owner, an entrepreneur. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons Pete I saw was he had incredible pride and love what he did. It was a small company, had two people. Right. This was a two-person business that was $150,000 a year. Right, right. But uh, I saw the, the love he had and the pride he had that I didn't understand at the time was entrepreneurship. You know, that, there right. was, that, that was not something I even identified with at the time. And I just saw that, that boy, I love the way he, he loved that business. He, who were his customers? His customers were retail floor covering customers. He, so he sold customers looking to put floor covering in their homes. And did he and have he it would, installed also? Yes, he had installed, yeah. Wow. So really uh, challenging job, tough job, physical job and... Well, he didn't install it. Okay. He had installers do it. Yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, it was not an easy business actually. And my mother, when I said, that's what I want to do, she was a pharmacist, stepped in and ran the business until I got out of college. Your mother was a pharmacist, so she left being a pharmacist. She did. And ran the retail carpet business. Because a 13-year-old son said, that's what I want to do. Really? Yes. So she was uh -huh. holding the business open for you? She truly was. My mother was my, uh, my inspiration, my leader. Wow. Everything. What was her name? Selma. And uh, did you ever give consideration to when Selma stopped being a pharmacist and was running the business? Did you ever con give consideration to, you know, you graduate from high school uh -huh. and you go right into the business? I did. And I almost did. So I wanted to go right into the business. And my sister, who was the wise one in our family, said to my mother, it'll be the worst thing in the world for him if he ever goes into the business. And if he doesn't go to college, you gotta make one commitment to me. My mother said, what was that? She said, you're gonna sell the business and not let him have a business. No. <laughs> and so I was, uh, my senior year in high school in November had not applied to a college. And because you felt like I, I want to go into this business that my father started. Right. And I quickly applied to college and it turned out to be one of the wisest decisions I think ever made. And the other thing my sister said was, do not go to a business school. Right. You're going to get all the business you want. Go to a liberal arts school. Gosh, your sister sounds like a fount of wisdom. She is a fount of wisdom. Wow. Yeah. So were there other... Uh, issues or things that came up during your beginning years that molded you uh, to be this kind of person who wanted to go into the business, I mean, in addition to your father's passing? I think what I saw was that how much family businesses meant in the community. At that time, there were less chains and there were less national sales. The family business was, the, in many ways, the hearts of communities. Right. Um, and naturally, I never imagined I'd end up where I am right now, taking over a small family business when I got, when I got out of college. And the college was very instrumental in my thinking, I think. I went to Wesleyan and very liberal arts and sort of taught a lot of opposite. I took art, not economics. Right. You know, I did sculpture. Right. <laughs> and know. it sounds like you had a good experience there. It was a great experience of just thinking outside of normal outside the box thinking. Okay, so you think outside the normal yeah. out the box thinking, but you came back to Manchester, New Hampshire and went into the business. I did, I did. Um, wow. I was very focused on that. And I said, boy, that's what I want to do. Tell me about yeah. those early years. What, what did yeah. you do? So I took over the business yeah. and it grew very quickly. So I, I always had a comfortable feeling with marketing and it grew very, very quickly. And I helped, uh, somebody had, I met, was part of a group that wanted to start the National Trade Association, they had never had one in our industries, and they had me involved at a very young age, 26. And 
one of the things that happened in one of those early meetings, I think was very instrumental the rest of my life, was I was sitting next to one of the board members and he turned to me and he said, I'm leaving a little early, Howard. He said, I have to go back and see my industrial psychologist. And I'd never heard of an industrial psychologist. And I said, are you okay? You know, and he said, <laughs> well, yes. He said, no, no, this is a person that comes in that helps me with our business and helps me with thinking about how do we deal with the people issues, how do I find great people? And I was fascinated by it. My brother's a psychologist, and I had some psychology in my family, and I said, what's his name? And he told me the person's name. The next morning, I called the firm up, made an appointment with Lester Tobias, who was the psychologist, one Lester of the psychologists. Lester Tobias, Tobias. And where was he? In uh, Westboro, Mass. Oh, yes. A company called Nordley Wilson. And um, I saw him. He said, this is what I do, and I was fascinated by it. And I proceeded to see Lester once a week for the next 18 months. Wow, and, and <laughs> at this point, you would have been a handful of employees? We, at that time, probably had a business doing $5 million and had probably 30, 5, 35 employees. So the okay. company went from being 150000 to $5 million Wow. Fairly quickly, and, uh, and, but Lester said to me, you can hire as good a people as you ever want to find if you understand what you're looking for and how to find them. And he told all, how to read all these tests and all these eight-page biographical summaries. And he said, nobody should ever apply without filling out this eight-page biographical summary. And I said, no one's going to fill that out for being in a floor covered <laughs> store. He said, if they want to work for you, they will. And I, I must have read 5,000 of those. And it really became part of my life of how to find great people. So it was instrumental in my life. Now, I almost went out of business doing it. Right. Because you, you felt like because you got so in, intensely involved with and fascinated by the psychology of the business? So two things. I got fascinated by Lester and what he, and what he was finding, that, right. that I could find these unbelievable people. And, how to, and my, my mother kept on saying, who was still active in the business, she said, you know, they don't know what they're doing. I said to mother, you don't understand how smart they are. She said, they might be smart, but they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and... After about 18 months, I was getting calls from suppliers who kept on saying, you're not paying your bills. And the Lester would come in and he'd say, you've got a great team, you've got to trust your team. Right. You have the best team in the world, you've got to trust your team. And I had, I had people, we we're going to open up 18 new stores, and I had bank financing to do it. Wow. And the calls kept on coming in, coming in, coming in, until one day on a Sunday, I went into the controller's office and I opened up the draw, and there were $2 million of unpaid bills. You mean uh, like uh, $2 million of unbooked? Unbooked. Unbooked, unpaid unbooked. bills. Right. Well, that will put a crimp into your Sunday afternoon. That did make a good Sunday. And I called the controller, Chuck, and I said, Chuck, I'm in the office and I see these bills. What is that? And he said, I didn't know how to tell you. We're broke. I said, oh. I said, why didn't you tell me what was happening? He said, I just couldn't tell you. Wow. Um, and so one of the interesting parts of my life was I had to tell my mother. Yeah. And my mother for... She, she had re told you those people didn't know what they were doing. For, for 18 months she told me what I'm doing. <laughs> and my mother turned to me. Not once did she say, I told you so. She gave me a big hug and said, I, I want to tell you I love you. And that's how you learn. Wow. Isn't that great? And it's probably one of the biggest lessons of my life, Pete. For sure. If my mother didn't give me the confidence then to make a mistake, I think I would have been risk adverse. How old do you think you were then? I was 28. You were 28, right. Mm -hmm. and, and many people who have had uh, setbacks mm -hmm. like that, they mm -hmm. go and mm -hmm. completely turn their lives the opposite way and say, I'm never taking any more risk. Right. You didn't and do that. No, I, it really gave me the confidence to know I could take a risk and still be loved. Well, how did you, how did you uh, bail that out? How did you recapitalize the business from there? How did you? So I, went, I had to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy, yep. which I didn't even know what it was, but I learned pretty quick. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it's interesting. I had a friend who was on the board with me in the National Trade Association, yeah. and he became my mentor. <clears throat> had he been through a similar business challenge? He didn't, but ironically, 10 years later, so he helped me understand what to do. Not money, but he really gave me direction of what to do. Right. Rick Meyer was his name, and he, w he ran the biggest floor covering chain in America. 
Carpetland USA based out of Chicago, and he really gave me the insight. He told me, you should do this, you gotta do this. Set up your books this way, do this, you know, and, and he was, so I, I got out of chapter 11 in 90 days, which at the time. I've never heard of that. Well, at the time I thought that was 30 years. Yes. Um, and I didn't even think it was quick, but today it's very quick. Yes. You know? yeah. Well, um, you know, little side story is I think you know this, uh, my family business went into chapter 11, and I think it was 1977. And my uh, parents were able to run that business for the next seven years in Chapter 11. And wow. They were able to emerge out of it again successfully. My gosh. But 90 days, that sounds like, <laughs> uh, actually it sounds like a gift because you got the lesson, but it was short and you got on with life. Yeah. Do well, I have that yeah. right? Yes, well, it was a big lesson. You know, people said, what was it like being Chapter 11? I said, it was like being in the bottom of a dumpster and you claw your way out until you see the air and then you realize they're putting another dump on you. <laughs> you know. Did you feel uh, some um, personal uh, anguish or shame about that? I felt a lot. So it was the local community, right. small community. Right. Um, yeah, there was embarrassment. Yeah. I was humbled. Um, we had the electricity turned off in the business because right. we didn't pay the bill. Yeah. People, were, employees were crying. Yes. Uh, it was very emotional. And yet did that give you a certain um uh gravitas on the national scene with your trade association afterwards so i became president of the trade association right four years later right uh, of which my friend who had helped me said i don't want you to ever become president you're going to lose track of the business <laughs> and it was the one time i went against his advice right <laughs> Oh, that's great. And then what's interesting is exactly 10 years to the day that I filed Chapter 11, he got into trouble with his business and filed Chapter 11. 10 years to the day? Yeah. Wow. And, and Did he reemerge out of it? He couldn't reemerge. He couldn't make a settlement with his creditors. And I called him one day and I said, Rick, let me try to help you. And he said, you know what? He had a big business. It was a $400 million business. And he said, I have the best lawyers in the country. I said, you know what you've done for me? I said, give me 24 hours to try to settle your debt. And I went to Chicago and met with his creditors. And in 24 hours, I settled his debt. Oh, isn't that great? So we each, That's you know great. something? He yeah. helped me and yes. I helped him. What a great reciprocity that was. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I have to ask, what happened to Lester Tobias? So it was interesting. <laughs> um, obviously, when I filed Chapter 11, I couldn't pay anybody, including Lester. Right. So I stopped seeing Lester. But his lesson, Lester continued working for Nordley Wilson. But I would say the lessons I learned for Lester became life lessons. So painful, but I've always learned, I think, the most painful lessons is when you learn. I think when things are really good, it's not that you don't enjoy them. You love them when they're good. But I don't think you learn a lot when things are really good. Yeah, I, I have to agree. In my own life, I think that when things happen that are wins or that are successes, you uh, you don't change, right? You want to right. do more of the same. Right. It's when you have those adversity or that actually I'll say failure and right. that you realize, uh-oh, I've got to change my behavior. I've got to right. do something different. And that's where all the learning and the growing comes from, I think. It, it totally does. I mean, I realized I just didn't know what I didn't know. Right. You know, and I didn't have enough people on the financial side of the a side that I, I maybe understood but wasn't strong enough or cared about that I needed to care about it. You know, um, sometimes when people get to know me as a business person, they uh, remark on my uh, some of my focus, which is on um, making sure that the businesses that I'm involved with are high performing. Right. including from a financial point of view. And I don't usually tell them this, but I think that some of that intensity on having it be high-performing comes from my experience with my family's business, uh, even though I was young, right. that I knew that you, know, you can be mission-driven all you want, but if you don't have mm -hmm. superior cash flow, yeah. you can't fund the mission. Right. Do you feel like any of your... Uh, success after that and your high performance came as a result of those lessons? Oh, I think, yes, without a question. I mean, it gave me a respect for things, parts of the business that I didn't respect. And it gave me a balance to understand where I need to balance my own skill set 
and that I needed to get somebody equally as good on financial skill set and operational skill set that maybe I could do to some degree, but I didn't pay attention to. And it maybe wasn't where my love was. My love was in creating and in the people part of the business and marketing, but I realized, boy, if you don't get the financial and operational right, you're gonna end up where I was. So yes, it gave me um, a respect for the different parts of a business to be successful, that if you're not holistic, you're not gonna be successful. So if I have this right, then you went from um, graduating from Manchester High School Central, where I followed you a few years later. <laughs> right. And you went to Wesleyan, and you came to work in the business, and that might tell me that really you've never worked for anyone else. No, I've never applied for a job. Because it strikes me you'd be a pretty crappy employee. I probably, you know, I think I would. <laughs> I think I would not be good. Um, no, I've never worked for anybody. Actually, I did in uh, when I was 12 years old. I worked as, I worked as a dishwasher at uh, the Catholic Medical Center, and that was the old dishwasher. Sacred it, Heart. Yeah, Sacred the, Heart. The, exactly. The hospital of the Sacred and Heart. And that's when the dishes, there wasn't as automation. And, you know, so the dishes came out and they were hot as anything. And my hands were burning. <laughs> and I said, "My, I don't think that's what I want to do the rest of my life. Right, right. So, um, Howard, I don't know this story at all. I apologize. But going from where you restarted, and what was the name of that company at that Dean's point? Dean's Carpet. Dean's, right. Right. And going from Dean's. where you started, how did... What's the bridge from getting to there to CCA Global? Yeah, well, that's interesting. So the company, once I got a Chapter 11, grew um, and became quite successful as a regional floor covering chain. And then I became president of the National Trade Association, which is now the World Floor Covering Association. And a very dear friend of mine was also president of it, Alan Greenberg. And we talked to each other and said, you know, look at the retail industry without scale retail is going out of business left and right and home depot and lowe's were coming into our category big time and we said you know if we don't do anything all these people and friends we've made around the country are not going to be able to survive including us and this was uh the uh inflection point right where you mentioned that when you were growing up that there were no chains and these were right. all family-owned businesses and now you're seeing the advent, and not only the advent, but the power of chains in many yeah. different industries, right? Absolutely. Including yours. Yeah, I mean, you, what you saw was, it wasn't a level playing field. That you weren't, not only weren't you buying as well, but you didn't have the marketing tools, you couldn't buy insurance the same way, you didn't have the real estate expertise. It wasn't one thing, and I always say, the local entrepreneur, it's not that they don't have the same ability or skill set. In most cases, they're smarter than the local manager of a national chain. Of course. But the manager of a national chain just opens the door. He manages the day-to-day -day operations. Everything else is done for him. They pick the best location, have the construction. They have the HR tools. Marketing is all done. And so we said, you know, we need to do something. And we're thinking about a franchise. And a dear friend of ours said, you know, I know the CEO of True Value Hardware Stores. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you guys meet him? We flew down to Butler, Pennsylvania, and a gentleman's name was Larry Zephus. He spent the day with us. And he was a cooperative. The True, Value. True Value was a cooperative right. chain of retail stores. Right, I think I remember that. Of hardware stores, True Serve, True Value. They changed the name a couple of times. Right. And we said, you know, that is what we're going to do. We're going to open a cooperative. And before that day, we didn't even understand what a cooperative was. And, and your cooperative at that point was, if I'm hearing you, was going to be um, what I think of as a buying cooperative. Right. So you're going to share some some buying mm -hmm. economies? So we did start out in the beginning, said it was really going to be three elements that controlled what we did. The three elements were going to be buying, marketing, and merchandising and operations. Oh. It was not going to be just buying. Um, and the original name of the company was Carpet, Corpora Carpet Cooperative of America. I see. Which is now CCA. Right. That's how the CCA Global came. And, and so our original goal was our original goal was to have 330 carpet stores in the United States. Why was that your goal? And we had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but after about two years, we had 185 stores. And Alan and I turned to each other and said, I don't think the number's right. 
We said, how many stores do we have? And we looked at, at the time, Cadillac dealership was kind of an exclusive dealership. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, it seems to be a Cadillac, Chevrolet dealers were everywhere, but Cadillac dealers weren't everywhere. And we, so we walked into a Cadillac dealership and we said, let me ask you a question, how many dealers do you have in the country? And they said, we have a thousand. And Alan and I walked out and said, that's our market research. There it is. We're going to have a thousand stores. We have a thousand Carpet One stores today. Wow, isn't that great? <laughs> so the research cost us about, uh, about a tank of gas. That's very funny. <laughs> but when you went, Howard, from the Dean's Carpet structure and you had your friends in the Trade Association nationally, they were all uh, for-profit normal businesses. Right. And then you and Alan decided to go to the co-op structure. Was that scary going from like I don't know if you were a C corp or whatever right. it was to right. a co-op structure because that's a that's a different world, isn't it? It, it is a different world. But the, I guess the two parts is number one, cooperatives are very entrepreneurial, so it's they're not nonprofit. You know, this is a profit driven. The only thing is the profit is shared by the members, and uh, so for the first early years, we kept our business too. Matter of fact, we ran the company out of our business the first two three years right. until we had a separate location. Right. And it became, uh, you know, a very big learning experience to understand the cooperative model, because it is entrepreneurial. On the other hand, you have um, you have many shareholders, not just yourself. Right. And it's for the good of all. And what we saw was that these were all people, a lot of people we knew that we brought in, that we were part of the trade association. They trusted us, and I think the nature of a cooperative is a high level of trust. When you went to the co-op structure, um, you, you gave up what was familiar and you went to what I'm guessing was a little bit scary. If you uh, think back now, would you say that the things that you were scared of or fearful of were the correct things in hindsight? I'd say the things we were fearful of were that everybody said, this is not going to work. Um, no, I don't think we were, I think Alan and I were fairly good risk takers and that goes back to my mother. So everything was back to your childhood early. You know, it goes back to my mother saying, I love you, even though I, I screwed up the entire family business. And um, I think we both went in actually not fearful. You know, it was interesting. I think we didn't know what we didn't know a little bit of. So, we, you know, it was, we were breaking new ground. There had never been a cooperative in the floor covering business in the industry. So we were breaking. And what everybody said was, the mills won't sell you. Matter of fact, we had three of the largest mills that called each other and said, don't sell them. Now, it was against the law for what yes, they did. Right. And we kind of pursued them, but we probably got out of business suing them. Right. Um, but they, they got together and said, that'll be the worst thing in the industry because they're going to drive the price down. Um, the reality is we're the best thing because we're going to make the members' dealers more successful rather than go out of business. But they were short-sighted with that. And thank God we had a couple of friends that owned some mills. The, mill, the industry was very fragmented at the time that said, we'll sell you. That's great. When you um, think about those days and you think about the national scene, right. your friends in the business, you know, we all work best with inspirational leadership. Can you think back to those days and think about, was there a leader or two that you worked with who struck you as being inspirational for you? I guess, you know, I go back that Rick Meyer, who helped me get out of Chapter 11, was really, in many ways, my business mentor. And he was an inspiration for me for what he did and how he did it. Was he a generation older than you? He was. Yeah. He was a full generation older. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what, and is Rick still with us? He is not. You know, in his 90th birthday party, oh, which I went great. to, yeah, that's great. Um, he told only one story. And the one story was, how he helped me and I helped him out of chapter 11. It was the only story <laughs> he told. Great. That's great. So um, I'm thinking about all of the entrepreneurs who are listening to this mm -hmm. podcast and thinking about all of our friends and clients who are entrepreneur mm -hmm. owner managers. And, you know, we feel, you do, mm -hmm. I do, that people work best and uh, behave best when they feel like they're empowered owners right. of a business. How does being a co-op either fuel that notion or not? It feels that notion. So maybe structurally, so I'm the CEO and chairman, um, 
we have a board of directors just like any normal company would have a board of directors, and we're extremely entrepreneurial. The only difference is distribution of profit. There is no other difference. We are very profit-driven. We are driven to be innovative as a company. And I would say that there is not a change from the entrepreneurial sense that people have and self-satisfaction of, of building something, of creating something, and having success. But um, one of the things that is different, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. uh, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong here, is that when you made the change to go to a co-op mm -hmm. structure, I'm guessing that there's uh, either not an opportunity or a lesser opportunity for a capital gain as an owner. That's correct. And so mm -hmm. how, how did you and Rick, how did you and Alan think about that? Well, I think there were a couple of things that was interesting because a lot of people say that it was, even today, Yes. Alan passed away 12 years ago, but they say, you must kick yourself in the pants every day that you built a $12 billion company and you don't own it. And I say, you know something? I wake up every day and I can't wait to wake up because it is so fulfilling what I do. And um, it's not that I get paid as a CEO, but there's not a capital, there's not a capital event that's gonna happen. And I don't need a capital event that's gonna happen. My, my life is not dependent on a capital event to happen. Um, I, I've been fortunate. One of the things I also pick up my mother was my mother had great happiness in small things in life. And I don't, and not, I live well, I can travel, I can do things I want. I don't need to be the richest guy in the block. I don't need to be the person in the block that maybe has the biggest philanthropy. You know, it's a very gratifying. When I have dealers come up, our members come up, stores come up and say to me, I would not have my business without what you're doing. Right. When, when I have, I have a bike store, Pete, that calls me up every Thanksgiving, Jack, every Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving, calls me up and he says, Howard, I want to tell you why I'm calling at Thanksgiving. He said, because I'm part of the bike cooperative. And he said, I am today delivering 550 meals to homeless people that I'm oh, yeah. paying for that I would not be able to do unless I was part of the bike cooperative. Isn't that great? And, you know, when I see that, when a child care center comes up and says, you know, your cooperative saved us $75,000 on insurance, and because of that, I hired three new people that are taking care of the children. Just to be clear, that's because the child care center is part of the cooperative. Cooperative. Right. Right. We have 20,000 child care centers. No kidding. Yeah. Oh. When we go back to your story, <laughs> that, so you, when you, some people say to you, when you wake up in the morning and you're a CEO of a $12 billion company, you must kick yourself that you didn't keep ownership of it. I wonder if sometimes you might wake up and say, actually, I wouldn't have been the CEO of this $12 billion organization if I kept the ownership of it. Because you yeah. might have been more focused on the ownership than on all the other things you've been focused on. Yeah, I don't think it maybe it would have ended up how it ended up. Right. I, I agree with you. You know, I think, you know, you could always say, oh my gosh, it could have been this. I don't think things happen, doors open, I always find doors open unexpected ways in unexpected places. And I don't think you can ever go back and say, this could have been that or this could have been this. I don't look at that way. I so agree with you, but it might be only you and me who think this way. <laughs> but, but I was chatting with uh, our team recently, and I was saying to someone that it's really difficult, I've found in life, to know if some, when something happens, you know, is that you might look at it and say, oh, that was a bad thing. Well, right. well let's be careful. Maybe right. not. Maybe right. it turns into a good thing. I, right. think, I think most things have ways to be lessons learned and right. be productive. Right. Even the bad things. So axiomatically, you know, when organizations are at their best, um, people sort of clearly understand and are committed to their unique role in the organizations. So I'm talking about role, R-O-L-E, role clarity here. Right. Yet you actually aren't the CEO of CCA Global, are you? You're the co-CEO, is that true? I'm the co-CEO, I'm chairman yes. of the board and co-CEO, right. And so so I'm thinking about role right. clarity sure. Howard, for a second. So yeah. how are you and your co-CEO able to achieve role clarity in that situation? It's interesting because there are not a lot of co-CEOs. And Al and I, when we started the company, were co-chairman and co-CEO. Wow, and you were, all that time. All that time, and people say to me, um, how did that happen? Actually, they did an article, one of the CEO magazines did an article on it because there aren't a lot of co-CEOs. And we said, 
the reason it works is because of great trust and respect. I think if you trust somebody and respect somebody, it can work, and clarity of role, so I agree. Um, Alan was always, and Rick, who's my co-CEO now, was more financially orientated, more operationally orientated. I was more people-orientated and creative and innovative-orientated. Um, and there was a nice balance. And I always say, you know, that balance is like a seesaw. And I believe a lot of business is like a seesaw. You know, the innovation side, if it goes too high, you're going to fall off the seesaw. And if the operation side goes too high, you're going to inhibit innovation. Right. And I believe one of the things that I have to work on as a, in my role is that balance, is that innovation should not be hindered by operations. On the other hand, if you don't have good operations, your innovations will lose control. You know, it's interesting. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, actually, if you have a co-CEO with whom you have that trust and communication, right. and if you have these different right. skill sets, in, in right. effect, you've made a more powerful uh, right. entity by doing that. Well, we have. And, you know, I would say in most times, it was true with Alan, it's true with Rick, I, we'll have a big decision going on. My viewpoint will be totally different than his viewpoint. He will say to me, well, th we got to do this, and more cautious about this. And I would say, we, we could you do this? And we come to a point of view that actually is better than I would have come out with and he would have come out with. And so, and it's one of equality. So you can say, well, I would get that from my chief financial officer. No, you wouldn't because he reports to you. Right. You don't that, actually hear that truth. You don't hear quite the truth. Yes, right. And I would say there's a, something about the equality of roles that brings a unified voice of each listening to each other in a way that maybe you wouldn't do in a normal environment. Are you and Rick um, super candid with each other? Very candid. And uh, do you ever get into uh, knockdown dragouts? We have, not often. So with Alan, in, before he passed away, it was 22 years, I think, we ran the business. And we only had two major fights, uh, major fights about issues. And one was about people, which I'm very, you know, more, was more fighting was, was this issue. And, and um, we didn't talk to each other. We talked to each other normally every day. Yeah. So we didn't talk to each other for three days. <laughs> After three days, he called me up and he said, I can't stand it. I can't sleep. It's like a wife. It's just saying that he said, I can't sleep. I'm not, I don't know what's going to happen. He said, we're going to settle this. <laughs> and, and, we, and we settled it. Yeah. So this is a, even though this role is a little non-traditional, it sounds like you would recommend this role to others to consider. It actually is an extremely good working role. Now, one has to not have an ego that says, I need to have it all. I need to have, I need to control everything else, you know. It's, it's mutual control. It's controlled by, and so I think it, it really is, is a great model. And you need to have a long, you have to have the person. So when Alan died, it took me a year and a half to find Rick. Right. I waited, I had two search agencies nationally that I were in, was interviewing executives around the country. So Howard, but I think what you're saying is that you were, when Alan died, you had decided that you wanted another co-CEO. Well, it was interesting. I was looking actually for a COO. Oh, yeah. And couldn't find somebody that fit the bill. And I had interviewed the CFO of Lord & Taylor and then the CFO of a couple, of, including the president of Starbucks, actually. And the search firm said, look, at you're going to St. Louis and... Uh, you're going to meet these two great CFOs. They both report to the, they reported to the same people at the May Company. They were both CFOs in different jobs in the May Company. And we used to have breakfast with Rick Meyer, uh, Rick, Rick, Rick Bennett. And, uh, and I had breakfast with Rick, and I called him up, searched for him. I said, I found the person. They said, which of the CFOs? I said, Rick. They said, well, he's not looking for a job. I said, well, that's who I want. And <laughs> they said, well, he's not looking. So it, for, I called Rick, we made him an offer, he, just, he wasn't interested in the job. It took me 18 months later, and finally I said to him, I was walking with my son one day, he said, Dad, you're gonna drive yourself crazy. I said, well, I keep comparing everybody to Rick. He said, just hire Rick. Right. I said, so I called Rick, I said, Rick, 
I want you. What do you need? He said, I'm, look, at, I'm, I've been a president. I'm not going to be a president. He was, he was head of the May Company. Right. And he said, I'm not going to go back to being a president. He said, I'd be co-CEO. I said, okay, what else do you need? And he gave me a list of other things. I said, well, okay. Okay. Yeah. He said, when can you be in St. Louis? I said, tomorrow morning. That was it. Yeah. Isn't that great <laughs> how you break a logjam like that and how, yeah. look where, and how many years ago was that? Uh, Rick, 11 years now. That's fabulous. So people sometimes tease me that I'm uh, very focused and very intentional about what I do. But if I think about it, you actually are one of the most intentional entrepreneurs that I know. And when you're an intentional person, you, uh, you have goals and you go after things. And so you say yes to things a lot. But if you're really successful, what you learn how to do is say no to other things. Right. What have you learned to say no to in the past few years? That's an interesting challenge because my mind tends to see a lot of things that I go, Oof. Yeah. it's like being in a candy store. That'd so I be think, fun to do. Yes, I think it would be. So, you know, it's like, I think business some ways, it's like being in a candy store and I see all these wonderful things. And, um, and I think that's where the balance of having my co-CEO says, you know something, maybe we should not think about doing all of these at the same time. <laughs> maybe we should be opening three new companies simultaneously. Um, and I, I have to, with my own, things say, you know something? This is not the biggest priority right now, of what the, both for the company and me, of what I think can be the highest value. And that's taken some reflection and some good thinking about, well, if I'm gonna, you know something, we all have, we have so many hours and so much passion we can put into any event. And it's sort of balancing and saying, what's gonna be the highest productivity of what's gonna be meaningful for the company in the short run and in the long run, how are we going to, what elements are going to change that? And that, that takes some self-discipline uh, to the table. Yeah, because, I mean, you're, you're a husband, a father, a son, mm. a brother, a leader, a philanthropist, right. uh, an outdoors right. person, an athlete. Right. I mean, right. so when you think about new opportunities right. and you think about bringing on a new opportunity into your life right. or your and Joan's right. life, do you ever think if I do that, the only way I can do that is to to discard something else from our lives? So I try to, my personal life and my business life actually are somewhat seamless. I try not to have a barrier between my life and my life. So Joan, I share almost everything with every night. Right. Um, you know, instrumental part of my world and fortunately, she loves the cooperative world and travels with me to it. And so, very important. So, Howard, I didn't want to have to tell you yeah. this, but she's your secret weapon. I know that. Okay. <laughs> I'm very aware. <laughs> she is. And so, if there was like, it has to be on a board, I went home and I said to her, you know, X, Y, they wanted me to be on this board. She yeah, said, for example. She said, if you go on that board, you better leave the house. You know, she said. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I understand the concept. <laughs> You know? So, so she's she's putting some guardrails up on the side. There are some the there are some very good guardrails, and I I try not to do anything actually that will hinder my personal time. I try to actually have my personal life be my personal life, even though it's seamless. That I discuss home with business. I don't just do it. I try to be home at a reasonable time every night. I try to not be encumbered on the weekends with business. So I really try to have it so business doesn't control my life. It's part of my life, but doesn't control my life. You know, you and I have never spoken on this topic before, so this is uh, news to me, but um, so many people talk about work-life balance. And um, I've often said balance schmalance. Right. Work-life balance is like being on a seesaw. One side's up, one side's down, one side's down, one side's up. I prefer to think about work-life integration. Yes. And in a way, that's what you're saying by saying it's seamless, I think. Yes, no, and I think it is. And I think, because I think people, that their work is there and then they come home and they have a life. So Joan, my wife comes, she'll come to the office. Yeah. She comes to the office for office events. We have a speaker in the office, she's in the office. We, we have the um, a, a initiative about healthcare and things in the office. She spoke to the people in the office. I mean, sometimes she has something to do, she'll stop by the office and just say hello to me. It. It, this is not... Um, my life starts at 8.30 at the office and I come home at 5 o'clock. I don't think life has to be that way. 
So if we think about the arc of your career so far, and we try to find some common uh, ground, some common characteristics that we can draw some conclusions mm. from, if you could be objective as you can be for a minute about yourself, mm. what would your friends say is your unique ability? People who know you mm. well, well, how would they describe you, what you're particularly good at, not only particularly good at, but you uniquely good at? Probably to be imaginative in a practical sense. And, but on top of that, I think to be connected with the people, to not lose, which is very important for me, to not lose intimacy. Intimacy in business, I think, is, is very important. Uh, to me, it's all about people. You know, people are not a vehicle to get things done. People are. My life is about empowering other people, whether it be in associates in the company, whether it be family businesses. That's my life. It was interesting, Pete. When I had the industrial psychologist Lester, he, they do. He did a two-day test of me before he went and met with the people. And I still have that report. When I was, there was, he did that when I was 26 years old. And I reported, he said, Howard will never be satisfied in life unless his social goals are integrated with the business goals. Right. When I was 26. Right. I mean, I didn't even understand what he was saying. Hey, you're consistent. Yeah. You just said you wanted to be seamless. Right. Right. That's great. So, um, Howard, m many people listening to this uh, podcast think of you as a leader in your domain. Your domain is a co-CEO. Your domain is an entrepreneur. Your domain is a leader. Um, and think of you as a thought leader. Do you follow any particular thought leaders, people who you follow regularly, either as authors or podcasters? Or? Well, I'll tell you one person that actually had an instrumental role in my life that I still, the philosophy, believe in. And it's not probably typical in business, which is Leo Buscaglia. Oh, yeah. So Leo Buscaglia yeah. was the original professor of love you at bet. the University of Southern California. Right. And at an early age, I started listening to Leo and reading Leo. You know, he wrote the book Love. Yes. Live, live Love, and Learn. Yes. And all, you know. I think of him as sort of standing with his arms outstretched. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And Leo, in some ways, was my philosopher king because um, I believe so much. Matter of fact, at when I had deans, the employees had they found Leo and got a, a signature of, of a picture of Leo that gave me. <laughs> they knew how much I, I loved Leo. Wow, that's great. Um, and I think some, the reason is I think love, and it's a foreign word that's not used in business a lot, I think is an integral part of who I am. And it's caring about people, loving people, yep. that I don't, I look at business as being part of who you are and part of who other people are, whether it be members we have or associates that work for us. And so I think Leo Biscali in many ways is an integral part of who I am. Is he still around, by the way? No, he passed away. Okay. And yeah. do I remember, yeah. was he a minister or was he a priest at one point? He was a, a professor. Yes. Um, I don't think he actually was a minister. Okay. He used to tell the story always was Papa. He used to always say when he came home for dinner is, used to go, Leo, what did you learn today? Tell me one thing you learned. And um, he was a great, great inspiration. So you were uh, just talking about, um, and we were just talking about some of, uh, as we are very intentional, adding things to our lives, subtracting things to our lives. And many people listening here will think a lot about goals uh, and achieving goals and what it takes to achieve goals. Um, and if you string along enough goals and to be good at it, um, that gets to the word habits. Right. Um, what would you say are your best habits? Well, Joan would say I have bookends and then in between others. So my bookends probably... What are your bookends? So in the morning, and I, in the morning I, I exercise every morning when I get up. Right. You know, I read the paper... I take, I have a long breakfast, read the paper. It's one of my bookends. Even when my kids were very young, it was one time I got, it was, could get up before they got up. And, you know, it, it's sort of the, 
that bookend. When I get to work, one of my habits is connecting with everybody. So before I do anything at work, actually, I walk around the entire office to connect with everybody. I want to know what's happened. I can see in their faces. Sure. We have different divisions. We have 15 different companies. And I can tell what's happening with you. Or, you know, you, or you just came back from a meeting. Tell me how it went. Or the convention just happened. Or this going on. They might not have come and just said something to me. And so I spend my first 45 minutes, and it's a habit of connecting. And I find that incredibly useful that, you know, you can have reporting, you can have systems, but I think caring about people and connecting with them and understanding what's going on, right, whether their business and their life is, a, is an important habit of mine to do. And you mentioned working out. In fact, you and I have been on uh, travel on some travel right. together. Where sometimes at five in the morning, it's just you <laughs> yes. and me in the fitness center. Yes, yes. Uh, so I get that. <laughs> but you know, I find Howard that um, it, it, uh, this is just anecdotal. But ninety percent plus of the challenges facing high-performing right. entrepreneurs, ninety percent of them, are psychological. Right. Uh, they're, they're not financial. They're not organizational. Right. Right. This is especially true for people who have sustained high output for long periods of time. Right. And um, I think when you start playing the deeper game that you're playing and that I would hope to play yeah. is when you really need to put physical practices in place. You know, that means either like increasing what you're currently doing or adding ones that maybe you aren't doing. Maybe for some people that means something like um, meditation. Right. Uh, for some other people that could mean uh, yoga or um, I have begun a practice of some holotropic breathing and my friends all think I'm wacky right. about. Um, yeah. what, are, what have you been doing in your workout routine that's new this year for you or that's been particularly interesting or energizing to you recently? A little Tai Chi, which I had not done before. I haven't tried that. Um, Joan and I went up to, uh, up to uh, Lenox Canyon Ranch. And oh, yeah. It was yeah. a good breakaway. Um, you know, the other thing I find is I try to, on a somewhat consistent basis, take a period away by myself. And I say away, not, not for days, but um, you're familiar with marginal way, obviously. I, so I, I go at least twice a year, just there, and I sit in the rocks by myself for five hours. Sit in the rocks beside your, uh, by yourself yeah. without Joan? Without, just all by myself. Okay. And notebook? A notebook. Yeah. And I sit with no one's there, just on the, I'm almost on the ocean. Like I could fall in. Yeah. If you don't see me one day, you'll know where to find me. <laughs> um, and I, I find different places where I go just to be by myself and reflect. And I find it is incredibly recharging and also reflective that both about life, my personal life, business life, things I'm doing, whether it be nonprofit, what I might want to do in life. And I take enough time to spend the time by myself in a setting that inspires me. And so let me just drill into that a little. So is that mostly reflection or is it also forward planning? Both. It's both. I, a lot of my planning happens. Joan always knows back when I come back from the things she said, Oh my gosh, what's gone on? You know, <laughs> it's sort of a debriefing. And is but, it and is that uh, is that seamless in terms of professional and personal also? Yes. Is it kind of like this is uh, and does it happen a certain time of year? No, I try to do it. So I, I try to do it in some fashion, marginal way. I'm not going to go out there in the middle of January. Yes. Because I might never come back. Um, but. I try to do both either marginal way or it could be somewhere else, just where, like we were just in Portugal and we were staying in this magnificent monastery up in the mountains. And I said to Joan, I'll be back in five hours. And I just went up and there was a magnificent hill overlooking the countryside in Portugal. And I went up with a notebook and sat there for five hours and it was magic. And I, so I find different places to do it around if we're traveling, but also here. and. It really, I find it's where, where I get inspiration. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you're such a giver, Howard, and I mean that, and you know, Adam Grant uses a, who's a psychologist at Penn, 
uses this very technical term about, and you've probably seen this, about givers, takers, and matchers. Yeah. And you're a giver yeah. through and through. But my own view of this is that givers give, 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 yeah. give, give, and they ultimately can get depleted. Right. And it's if you're a depleted giver, you're no good to yourself or right. anyone around you. And it sounds to me right. like that's a way for you to get rejuvenated or refreshed. Yeah. Is that five hours with a notebook? It is. It is. But I can get refreshed in a lot of other ways. So I get refreshed... Fortunately, my refreshment comes easily. That's um, it yeah. could be in a bike ride. Yep. You know, it could be something just very simple where I feel re-energized pretty quickly. Well, let's look at the obverse of this. Do you have any kryptonite? Do you um, have either people or activities or places that are kryptonite for you that rob you of your energy? Yes, you do find. So most people, I like most people, but I... I do, you run into people sometimes that absolutely it's kryptonite. Um, and matter of fact, I'll say to John, I say, boy, I'm not sure what it is, but I can't be with that person. Uh, there was no question. There, there are, uh, I was on a board, there was a little kryptonite once um, where I just would come back and go, you know, this doesn't feel good. I, uh, I have a little kryptonite too. It's important for us to know what, what it is. Yes, I think it's, it's critical. I agree with that. Right. Yes. You and I have, um, have spoken in the past about our experience that uh, high-performing entrepreneurs are frequently are continuous, curious, passionate readers. Have you been reading anything recently that uh, you want to share? Is there anything that uh, has uh, right. taken your uh, attention? Well, I think you met also Bob Johansson from the Institute of the Future. Yes. And um, his new leadership literacies. Yes. is very fascinating. Yeah. And because also I find it incredibly, not only is he a thought leader, but his view of where the world is going, which is much less centralized and much more decentralized, um, fits so much to the cooperative model that I find it's just so fascinating um, that I had not thought about some of the things that he, with the gig economy, that we all know is happening. Because the cooperative model is so fascinating that it can be applied in so many ways that people have no idea what to leverage. You know, because in some ways, we're trying to solve so many of society's problems by subsidizing people. People don't want subsidies, they want opportunity. They want ownership, they want hope. And the co-op model for today and tomorrow, is, to me is a vision of hope and in ways applied that I think a lot of people could not understand it being applied. Yeah, I like that book a lot too, and I, it's interesting, my take on it, similar mm -hmm. to yours, is that the new economy really levels the playing field for entrepreneurs, Yes, because there's no, not a lot of benefit for economy of scale. In fact, I might right. argue there's some diseconomies of scale right. from the bureaucratic world, right. but I haven't thought about it from the co-op way. I get your point exactly. I, I, I really see that. I can imagine how the next uh, 20 years would be really a boom time for people who want to have co-ops. Well, what people, they be want their, yes, they want to be independent. They are their own being, but everybody needs scale. Whether you're a family business, you're individual, in some fashion, you can't do all the things you want and have scale. Matter of fact, you know, they just came out with the numbers that um, in 2017, 82% of the wealth went to the top 1%. That, if that continues, our society will have a problem. And right. there's ways to have redistribution without having subsidy. I yeah. think, you know, a lot of people are, some are for, some are against subsidy. Subsidy's not a good, it's not a solution. Yeah. Subsidies, you need food today, I'm gonna give you food today. That's not a solution. So, if you think about um, young people maybe graduating yeah. from high school or college today, and you think about these people who are like smart, driven people right. who wanna become entrepreneurs, do you have any um, sentence or two of advice for them? If I was a young person today, the first thing I'd want to do, I don't care if I worked for a penny, is find somebody that I highly respect that was going to, it was going to learn from. I would worse worry about the job than learning from somebody that is going to change my thinking, change my views in life. I think so many people are, I'm going to get a starting salary of 60000 or 100000 or 30000 It doesn't matter what it is. And they get in a routine of life that you can't change then. If I was early in my life, I'd want to work for thought leader. 
I'd pay to work for a thought leader. Yeah. Um, it's somebody that's going to change my thinking of how I view the world because that's when I wanted to learn that is when I'm 22 and 23, 24. I don't want to learn it at 50 and say, oh my gosh, look what I could have learned all these years. And, and then as your father in life, you can't change a lot of direction you're doing. You get the family you have, you know, you've built the house. You got the country club. You got all these things <laughs> that are, that are sort of fixed, and you can't have a lot of changes. When you're young, you have opportunity to learn from people that you would never have a chance to learn later on. So, if you're uh, a uh, aggressive, driven new mm-hmm. college graduate, mm-hmm. wanted to be out in the world, your advice mm-hmm. is get a mentor. Get a great mentor. Get a great mentor. Don't just get a mentor. Get a mentor that's a thought leader. Okay, so come with me to uh, a magical land, and uh, let's pretend we uh, we go to sleep tonight, and tomorrow we wake up, and magically, it's November 29th, two thousand and twenty-eight, ten years from today, and uh, we're together, and uh, I say, "Hey, Howard, how's it been going?" You go, Pete. It's been great. You remember back in 2018, we had that interview, the podcast interview. Since then, things have been going just great, personally and professionally. Tell me what happened. Look over your shoulder. Tell me what happened. So I think from a personal standpoint, I have more grandchildren. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm papa to many people. Great. How um, many do you have now? Just one. Okay. But I hope that's growing. Good. Listen to that, Greg. Listen to that, Greg. <laughs> yeah. um, and... Beyond that, uh, obviously with Joan and I, that our life continues to be growing. And, and that's not just travel, but I think our life is enriched by so many things we're doing for other people, of helping others in ways that are very meaningful together. So I think one of the things we've committed, Joan and I, is that things we do, it's together. It's not that I'm gonna do something and she's gonna do something, which we both do, but that we have goals together. Right. And in business, I really see that the cooperative model, you know, if you look at two biggest issues today in our society, many, obviously, but healthcare is one of the massive problems from a cost structure, quality structure. The co-op model could really be applied. I hope 10 years from now I'm sitting to tell you, you know, Pete, what's happened is the healthcare now, we have changed that home care workers are part of a cooperative and that the health system is owned by the doctors and the patients together. Yes. To come out with, and we're succeeding in doing that. In South America, one third of all the healthcare is done by cooperatives. It's being done now the rest of the world. It can be done here. I'm hoping that I would tell you that's being done. And in the nonprofit sector, they were able to bring cooperatives in to give scale to small nonprofits so that they could deliver their mission like they never believed they could deliver the mission. Because in so many ways, nonprofits are like little cottage businesses. They don't have scale, and yet the ones that are running the local community center or the mental health center, their passion for running it, you can't consolidate them because it's the executive director where the passion goes, but they need scale. They need scale for fundraising, technology. They need scale for training and volunteers that we could provide the scale to them. I hope that I could tell you we're sitting here and that we've changed the nonprofit world in scale. Wow, that's a great 10 years. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, I was at a, uh, a get-together to honor Clayton Christensen yes, and uh, the Christensen Institute. And in his work of disruptive innovation, he's done, as you know, a lot of work both in the for-profit sector but also in the not-for-profit sector. I'm not sure about the cooperative sector, but there was a panelist there that night in Boston who is this president of... Um, I'm sorry I don't remember the exact name, but it was something mountains, it might have been Western Mountains Medical Center, where they had 17 hospitals. And they had their own insurance company. So in effect, the patients paid into the insurance pool, but then they were served by the hospitals and the doctors who benefited by that. I wonder if that was a co-op. I don't know. So there there are a couple of cooperatives in the country up in the Northwest. Oh, yeah. There are a couple of co- healthcare cooperatives in this country. Uh, one just became part of Kaiser. Kaiser is a semi-cooperative because the doctors own part of Kaiser. Oh, I see. Um, which is one of the best healthcare operations in, in the United States. For sure. 
Well, that seems like a great application for the co-op yeah. uh, model. Um, Howard, in, we're coming to an end, yeah. uh, but in this group of um, listeners, both uh, entrepreneur owner managers and also would-be entrepreneurs, there's a lot of um, high achievers. Um, but, but not all of these high achievers would characterize themselves personally as content or fulfilled. Would you describe yourself as content? Yes. <laughs> so that's one of the fortunate things in what I do. I am very content and fulfilled. I think the nature of the cooperative business structure, so it fulfills both my entrepreneurial sense and my social sense. Um, so I wake up every day enthused and passionate, and I go to bed every day, every night, being somewhat, not every night is not perfect, as we know in life, but I am fulfilled. Okay, last question, and this is your question. All right. What's the one misconception that people who know you may have yeah. about you that you feel <laughs> could be a misunderstanding? That's interesting because I do ask that, Pete. That's my favorite question to ask. On I know, how I got this question right? from you. <laughs> um, it's now become one of my favorite yes, questions. Yes, yes, I think. Um, you know, I am, I, I perceive them not easygoing because obviously I'm passionate in what I am, but I'm very impatient. Impatience is um, probably drives more than people understand. Um, and so I, my level of patience, I need to, it's a skill set I should learn. Joan says I'm the most impatient person she knows in life. I, but I, I'm probably more impatient than people realize. So that one hand I really care and I, my interpersonal dealings are critically important to me in the other level. Um, my impatience is probably greater than people realize. Uh, because on the one hand, I, I think I am warm and I care about the people. On the flip side, I have a drive in me that says we need to get this done today. That's a great ending. <laughs> Howard, I want to thank you so much for your, your creative <laughs> and unique entrepreneurship. In fact, I would say, <laughs> Howard, <laughs> you are what you started out to be. You're a sculptor. <laughs> and was it uh, was it uh, Leonardo who said, yeah. oh, when I go to sculpt, or maybe it was Michelangelo, yeah. I go to sculpt, I just take away the outside and I find the person inside. Right. And that's what you do. That's what you do with organizations and that's what you do as people. So thank yeah. you so much for being yeah. on Positive Enterprise Value with us today. It's been my pleasure, Pete. Thank you.